Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The Apostle John was told by a heavenly voice these words. Write, write this down, he says, not to you, to John. You can write it if you want. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And John said that the Holy Spirit confirmed those words with these. Blessed indeed that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Blessed are the dead. Those words will be most completely fulfilled when the events of Revelation take place. But those words are true right now. Blessed, not cursed. Here. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. I don't know what you think about death. This is the heavenly view, literally spoken from heaven. Blessed. Last week you saw really the best that this world can offer us when it comes to how we think about death, and that was in the holiday of Halloween. That is, from a worldly vantage point, a way of dealing with death. We put images of death all around, spiders, skeletons, tombstones, and then try to lighten it by adding candy, <laughs> but it's still the darkest of all our holidays. Consider that in contrast, if you will, just by way of illustration, to the holiday that for us as Christians most represents how we think of death. Not Halloween. Easter. Or Resurrection Sunday, if you will. These are holidays of human invention. If you've ever researched them, they have very odd origins, so I'm not adding emphasis to the holidays themselves. But if you do set them side by side, Easter, Halloween... They do present to you the two ways to think about death, one from the world and one spoken from heaven to us. Think about it. There's so much about these. Halloween itself, it occurs in the cold. And this year, especially if you went out, very, very cold. There's a reason for that. Best we can tell some of the origins of Halloween go back to an ancient Celtic festival called Samhain. And it was around this time to mark the end of harvest and to mark the coming of winter and therefore even that ancient festival had a lot to do with death because winter was associated with death at that time. A lot of people would die in the winter, especially then. There's one way of thinking about and celebrating death. Set that side by side with Easter. When does Easter occur for us? In the full sunshine of the springtime, when the frozen tundra thaws, then comes Easter. And Easter changes its date, you are aware, because we base it on the Passover of the Jews, which is on a lunar calendar, if that means anything to you. That's why it's sometimes March, sometimes April. But no matter what date it falls upon, the sun is shining, almost always. It's a warmer time. You can hold any view of those holidays that you want, you know, as you're hearing these. Some people think that they are too closely attached to their pagan roots to be celebrated by Christians today. Others think they're distant enough now that it doesn't matter. Think whatever you want about it. Scripture says each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. I'm only making one point about them, and that is that they are a good illustration of two ways of thinking of death. One, the cold, the macabre, the grim 
and the other, the warm and the bright and the cheerful. They both, both holidays have to do with death. You're aware. We have a Good Friday and then Easter. Both have to do with death. But what a different way of thinking about death. Really, Halloween suggests the cursedness of death, and death is cursed. And for us, Resurrection Sunday, the blessedness. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. When you face death, which you have to do, you have no choice. There's no way to get out of this. When you yourself face death, what attitude will you hold? You'll have some attitude toward it if you're conscious. What attitude will you hold toward this inevitable human experience? Is it going to be a brightness or a darkness? Is it going to be a warmth or a coldness? Springtime, winter. For the Christian, no matter how you view death, if you're in Christ, you will cross that river. Whether it's a terrible, nearly drowning journey, you still get to the other side and dry off in the celestial city, or if it's smooth sailing, whatever your view, you get over, praise Christ for that. But the way you view death actually has much more to do with your life right now. If you hold death with a macabre, grievous attitude, then in the present, you lose a lot of your courage, a lot of your comfort, a lot of your godliness, biblically speaking. If, on the other hand, you see it the way heaven speaks of it, that there is now a blessedness. Still, it is cursed, but there is a blessedness in death for the Christian. And if you have that view, that transforms your life right now. Is death just cursed? Or is it now in the age of Christ also blessed? Is it an event to be remembered only in the wintertime? Or is it a springtime sort of experience? Paul will answer that question today in Philippians. We're considering the same verses as last week where we considered Paul's view of life, but now we're looking at what attitude does Paul hold when he thinks of death? So read with me in Philippians 1, follow along, um, beginning here at the end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this imprisonment, will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that, death, is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. 
Paul summarizes his view of death here as this. For me, to die is gain. We usually speak of death as a loss. You suffer a loss. And that is true from the vantage point of those of us who remain. We lose someone. What Paul is saying is from the vantage point of the person who goes, it's not a loss. Death is a gain. That's what he calls it. It is, in other words, a blessing. For Paul, as we're going to see today, death is a gain in two ways. You may be wondering, how could we possibly think of something as horrible as death in this way, as a blessing? Paul says it's gain in two ways. The first way we'll see is actually right before verse 21, where he says it's gain. At the end of verse 20, he says his greatest expectation is that Christ will be honored, and that can happen by death. The Christian's death can honor Christ. That's a benefit of dying. The second way he'll say that death is gain for us is found in the verses after 21, especially verse 23. How is death gain? Because the Christian's death is departing to be with Christ. And that is very much better. So first... Death is gain for Paul and for you if you're in Christ because it is an opportunity to do what you most want to do, glorify Christ. And secondly, death is gain because it brings you consciously to Christ. Since God has granted us at the moment an extension of life and we don't know how long that extension will last, it's fitting for us to consider this Let's give our full careful focus to Paul's view of death, which by the grace of God has to be ours, has to be yours as well. So let's look at Paul's view of death and let's do it by beginning here with the first reason Paul thinks of death as gain. It is, as I said, because death, our death, can honor Christ. I don't think this is actually Paul's main point in verse 21 when he says death is gain. I think that's actually going to be that we can be with Christ. But he does make this as a point, that this definitely is for Paul one of the benefits of dying. Look at it again here in verse 20. He had said, it's my eager expectation and hope concerning his upcoming trial in Rome that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, physical body, how? We saw last week, it could happen by life if he survives. But he also says, or, Christ is honored in my body by me dying. This is the way that Paul thinks about death. This is, like we said last week, among Paul's priorities. He prioritized, above all else, that Christ would get glory. If you're a Christian, that's what your life is for. That's what you're about, Christ getting glory. You might have thought your life was about not dying. It's a natural way to think, but we're supernatural now. We're in Christ. We live a higher life, and Paul has as a priority not dying. He escaped out a wall one time in a basket when people tried to kill him, he would like to not die if an option, but if the options are great glory to Christ or survival, survival's lower down. So Paul, if his not surviving can bring Christ glory, he says, in this I will rejoice. 
He knew Christ could be honored in his body by death. Pause there just a minute and think about this one small word, by. Christ can be honored in your body by death. What does the by mean? The by presents to us something that we call instrumental. I'm not talking about a guitar or piano, not that kind of an instrument. Think more of a tool. If you are trying to fix your sink in your kitchen that is broken, it's clogged, and you go underneath and you have a wrench so that you can get it out and see what's clogging it, you fixed your sink, ideally. <laughs> I don't usually succeed, but if you did, you fixed it by the instrument of what? A wrench. Didn't use your bare hand. The wrench helped you to accomplish your goal. When Paul uses the word by in verse 20, referring to death, He's saying death for him, well, really, in the hand of God, is like that wrench. It is a tool in God's hand. And what is God trying to do in Paul's body, in Paul's life, in your life? God's main aim, and rightly so, it's ours too, is that he is thought greatly of. That he's glorified and honored. And his son is honored. And so God is going to honor his son and he pulls the wrench out of his tool belt. Now, God, this is Paul's point, has more than one tool in his tool belt by which he can get glory. That's what Paul means when he says, whether by life, here's a screwdriver, or by death, here's a wrench. And God can get glory, he can fix the sink in either way. Paul's interest then is just which one works better in this case? By life, by death. Whichever one works better. Not, I don't want to die. It's whichever one works better to accomplish the goal. God, use that. That's what the by means. Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. We know from last week, really from this text later on, Paul actually will survive. So the tool God uses in this case is life. Paul survives and succeeds at his trial, you could say, and gets out, lives longer, proclaims Christ, and so God is glorified in that way. But we also know that later, Paul was imprisoned again, put on trial in Rome once again. And if you read 2 Timothy, you see Paul saying, I know this time I'm going to die. And that, in fact, is what happens. His head is severed from his body. That meant in that case, God decided to use a different tool. Paul's opinion is, fine. Whatever tool God wants to use, living, dying, I don't care as long as the sink gets fixed, as long as God gets glorified. That's genuinely Paul's priority. Paul is not just in some stoic way trying to deal with death in ways that we sometimes try to cope with it by minimizing it, by laughing at it, by treating it as a light thing, by not thinking about it. These are all ways, by denying it, we try to cope with the pain and suffering accompanying death. That's not what Paul is doing. It's just that for Paul, there is such a burning passion that Christ be honored that death doesn't matter that much. It's nothing but a tool or an instrument. The reality is that Paul was right. Christ was honored by his death. Christ was probably glorified and honored 
right when Paul's head left his body, the Romans who did this, perhaps members of the imperial guard, were present and saw this Jewish man die for Christ. And they, before that point, had never heard of Christ before Paul came into their life. But then Paul had been talking of him, a man who died and resurrected, the son of the living God and can provide eternal life for those who believe in him. They begin to hear this. They think, okay, there's lots of religious ideas out there. Here's one of them. Interesting. But when they see Paul persist in it and come to the point of either you deny Christ or you lose your head, and Paul says, happily, take it off. Then at that point, it drives his message into their hearts. You can't ignore the message. You can mock it or dismiss it. But at that point, it's right in front of you in the most shocking manner. They're beholding him be beheaded for the sake of Christ. He's dying on the basis of his hope that this Christ who they hear of can bring him back to life. And those Romans, even for them, even if they never believe in Christ have at least the suspicion that perhaps, perhaps Christ is real. Perhaps he is the son of God. Perhaps he resurrected. Do you know what we call that? Christ being honored. Even more than this with Paul, Christ was honored when he lost his head later because, look, here you are. What are you doing? You are thinking about Paul losing his head. It happened so long ago, and yet Christians for 2,000 years have taken comfort, especially the persecuted, in a person like Paul dying. Paul's martyr death, believing in the power of Christ to resurrect him. That goes on helping you trust Christ more. If you trust Christ more, what does that mean? It means that Christ is honored. By Paul's death. <clears throat> Listen, if the Lord returns in your lifetime, could happen, you don't have to die. <laughs> We'd all like that, certainly. We shall not all sleep, Paul wrote in one of his letters. It means we don't all die if Christ comes back. If Christ doesn't return on your preferred timetable and he's coming later, then you yourself, you and not another, you are going to die. You are going to move from a state of consciousness in your body <clears throat> out of consciousness in your own body. The Bible speaks of this as your spirit leaving your body. That will happen to you. You'll no longer inhabit what Paul calls a tent. We're in a tent. When you go camping, it's temporary. You will no longer be in this tent. You. What will that be like? I don't know. You don't know. I've not experienced that. You've not experienced that yet. It's an unusual experience. It isn't natural. But it is a part of this world. You don't have the opportunity to say, I just don't want anything to do with that. It's like taxes. You can say you don't want anything to do with that, but then you go to prison. Similarly, there's an inevitability about your death. You have to face it. If you're courageous, if you're cowardly, whatever you are like, it doesn't matter. This is a part of being in Adam in this cursed world. Because of our sin, we die. But for us as Christians... Death is not just death. We would all like to die well. I think I could say that about every single person here. If for nothing else, then just not to embarrass ourselves or so that we have comfort at the end. If for nothing else. For Christians, there is something else. We want to die well 
so that Christ may be honored in our bodies by death. Not just when Paul dies, not just when the martyrs die, when you die, when I die. If we die, we want to die in a way that brings Christ honor. And if we do, then death is gain in that way. I think a good example is even, even just this week, someone had sent me an article about Sheshi Kaniki. He's an African pastor. This was this person's uh, friend. They knew this person and his wife. Sheshi was born in Tanzania in Africa, but he went to college in Zimbabwe. While he was in college, he met his wife, Trudy, and he had come to Christ in college. She was a believer as well. They married. So now, after graduation, they moved down to South Africa. He had a PhD in economics, so he had a job that was very promising, had a lot of upward mobility. He was well-respected. His future looked very bright. But then he and his wife, as they were praying and thinking, I'm sure, came to a conclusion that God wanted them to plant a church in his home country of Tanzania. But to do this would mean he would give up his whole bright future there in South Africa. And they decided to give everything up. So Sheshi and Trudy, they moved up to Tanzania. They began a church. It grew to uh, about this size, a little smaller than a church like this. But over the course of several years, very healthy in a part of the world that's especially prone to ideas of Christianity being just the spectacle and the miraculous and the immediate healings and being very much about hierarchy in that culture, yet Amazingly, by God's grace, under Sheshi's leadership, it's a very service-oriented, other-oriented local congregation there in Tanzania called God's Tribe. Still there today, of course. However, at the beginning of the year 2020, not a good year for most people, but at the beginning of the year 2020, as Sheshi is pastoring, they begin to notice some problems. He would say something during a sermon that seemed a little bit off, he began to get emotionally turbulent, wasn't sure what was going on, and then in May of 2020, he passed out. They took him to a hospital, and here is a man, 45 years of age, had four fairly young children, and received the diagnosis of terminal brain cancer. Spent about a year fighting the cancer, and then two months ago, literally two months ago, Sheshi, I think it's online, was speaking very slowly because of the brain cancer, but he said, I have felt that there is this expectation that I'm going to be healed, but healing can come in different ways. God may not choose to heal me here. Think of how shocking that sounds in our culture. Imagine how shocking that sounds in that culture. Of course, God will heal you if you have enough faith, prosperity type theology. At the beginning of last month, on October the 3rd, Sheshi departed to be with Christ, which is very much better. What really stood out to me was the last request he made of his wife, Trudy, before he passed was that the Sunday after his funeral, she would read a letter to that precious flock, God's tribe. And this is included in that letter just last month. He said, I want to charge you, church, God's tribe, that my going home, death, is cause for the gospel to advance. 
Who does that sound like? Paul. You are living in the reality, he said to his church, that this life on earth is short. How will you live your life in light of the gospel? That, that right there, that's this. See that? This, that, this. Sheshi experienced death, just like you and I will. But it wasn't just giving in to this terrible, inevitable experience. It wasn't just in great grief, surrendering to the most horrible thing. It was, yes, it's painful. But it was, may God use this to advance the gospel. May Christ be honored by death. And I tell you now, Sheshi's death was not in vain. Is Christ honored by his death? Yes. I can tell you 150 people in Tanzania who would say yes. And I hope here, in hearing his story, will say yes. And those who read his story say yes, Christ is honored. You think more of Christ because who talks like this? Only those who believe in a Christ who's holding on to them, even into the shadow of death, and will bring them out. So the first reason that for you and for me death is gain in Christ is because our death is a tool that God can and I pray will for all of us use to bring Christ glory. But like I said, I don't even think that's the main emphasis of Paul when he says in verse 21 that to die is gain. The emphasis, I think, is what he explains in verse 23. We say, gaining what? What do you gain? Verse 23, I'm hard-pressed between the two. That means living and dying. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Yes, death was gained because it would bring glory to Christ. But secondly, and primarily for Paul and for you, death is gained because it brings you to Christ. Before we imagine what that means exactly? What does it mean to depart and be with Christ? I want to just emphasize in this text how highly Paul valued departing to be with Christ. Look at that phrase right before he says it. I am hard pressed between the two. Not that Paul's going to choose if he lives or dies, but just in his own mind as he considers the options, he's saying, what's really my preference? Do I really want to live or do I really want to die? Most of us have never wrestled with that. <laughs> Never. Well, you want to live. Of course, that's natural. And yet, Paul is being sincere. He's not being facetious. He's being fully honest in his own mind, thinking in a heavenly manner. He says, honestly, pros and cons on both sides, live, die, they're very similar. If you've experienced the death of a loved one, or been deathly ill yourself and recovered, you know that though we Christians speak of death this way, and it's true, that the atrocities that accompany death make it clear that there is a cursedness in it. There is a pain, there is a grief and a suffering that we do not in any way minimize. And Paul is aware of that more than most of us. He was stoned and they left him thinking he was dead and he got up and went back in the city. He's been on the very cusp of death before. So Paul knows that death is unnatural, painful, and in itself bad. But when he puts all the badness of the experience of death on one side of the equation, he says, well, the good on the other side here, the benefits of dying are so great that it makes me feel like it's better. 
The grammar actually in the Greek, and this is not in the ESV, I think it is in the NASB, but emphasizes the fact that when Paul says, I'm hard pressed between the two, that next sentence, I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, that actually relies upon, that explains for us why he's hard pressed. I think NASB probably says, I'm hard pressed between the two, having the desire. That's how the grammar of the original is. It relies upon, it's explaining. Why is he hard pressed? Why is this a hard choice? Just live. That's the easy choice. The reason it's a hard choice is because of how much he wants to depart and be with Christ. It's so good that it makes that choice very difficult in his mind. And if we go again to the Greek, if you'll allow me, you, you can kind of see it in the English. Notice what he says, departing to be with Christ, is much better. Literally, very much better. So, you and I might get to the point, wrestling through, taking hold of the promises of Scripture, we come to the point where we say, okay, I can at least confess that death is not as bad as I think it is. But is that what Paul says? We may even wrestle by faith and come to the point where we say, okay, not only is it not as bad as I think it is for me, but it might even be good. But is that what Paul says? Or we come and finally say, well, okay, by faith, not just good, actually more good than living. Or we would say better. But is that what Paul says? No. We might come to the point where we say, okay, I'm growing, I'm growing. You know what? Death is actually much better. And some of our translations read that way, but the Greek actually has two words before better. Very much better. <laughs> you get Paul's point here? New American Standard, very faithful to the original here. Very much. Do you think about death like that? Do you think about death like that? I don't usually think of death that way. But that's why we're reading the Bible and applying it, because you have to. You have to get there. That's the Christian's view of your death. Jesus wept for the death of others. We're not minimizing that pain, but for your death. Here, is it very much better than living? How can it be that the one event that most everyone in the world most fears is for Paul the event he most longs for, literally more than anything? You realize when you die, you lose every earthly pleasure. If it's a relationship, if it's a goal that you have in this world, if it's honor, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is you're seeking, it's gone. You are dead and you cannot experience it. So that's why death must bring us to something that's so much better that it's literally better than the accumulation of everything else you enjoy. A nice sunrise, a nice coffee, good times with friends, lunch after church today, hopes and prospects in your workplace, having children that grow up and love the Lord and are honorable and respectful. All of these things bring satisfaction. And Paul is saying that to leave this world and lose the conscious experience of all of those things for him, it's not just good, better, much better. It's very much better than literally everything else. Paul will tell us later in Philippians that he counts everything in his life, everything, 
to be rubbish, garbage, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Hear how Paul elaborates on this in this passage at the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's like taking our passage and extending it in Paul's thought. He says in the first eight verses of 2 Corinthians 5, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, that's your body, it's a tent, is destroyed, you die, we have a building, see how that's permanent, it's better, very much better, from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for in this tent... We groan, and some of us groan louder than others, depending on what's going on with your body. But in this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. And what he means there is, it's not like any of us have a weird, masochistic desire to die. Don't have, that's bad. Even in the early church, some of the leaders had to tell Christians like, hey, cool your engines, don't try to get martyred. It's not like we like being unclothed. It's not like we love the idea of leaving our body. It's weird, right? It's supposed to be. It's unnatural. For while we're still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we'd be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, that's you right now, you are away from the Lord. He dwells in you spiritually, but you're not consciously, immediately, visibly experiencing Christ right now. And that will be true as long as you're home in the body. How do you know that, Paul says? Because we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, he says, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. To die is gain. Now you might object at this point that really the Christian's great hope is actually the future resurrection. That later Christ will return and we will get new resurrected bodies. That's the primary Christian hope. And in the New Testament, it is true. That is where the emphasis lies. So you might wonder, well, what happens right now if I die? My spirit leaves my body, but I don't have a resurrected body yet. This is what we call in theology the intermediate state. You are in a state or place that is intermediate between dying and your future resurrected body. That's what Paul is talking about here in our text, an intermediate state. Some people have supposed that because the New Testament talks about dying right now as falling asleep, that therefore if you die right now, you don't immediately see Christ, but instead you enter into a soul sleep where you are unconscious of all things until you get your resurrected body. The main problem with that view is the Bible, especially what we're looking at right here, because what does Paul say about departing from the body? To depart and be with Christ. Again, if you pardon the grammar, in the Greek, the way that those two verbs, to depart, to be with Christ, are used, there's a little thing called an article 
that usually would be given to each of them, it's only put once at the front saying, we're attaching these things together. They go together. To depart, to be with Christ, those go together. You don't sleep unconsciously until you resurrect. Paul says, I want to die because if I die now, immediately I am with Christ. Isn't that what Paul said there in this passage in Corinthians chapter 5 as well? We would rather be away from the body. Why? Because to be away from the body is to be with the Lord right now. Otherwise, what do you do with Jesus on the cross telling the thief beside him, today you will be with me in paradise? Not thousands of years later when you wake up from a soul sleep. Today you will be with me in paradise. Even the parable that Jesus told of Lazarus and the rich man. You remember Lazarus was a poor man outside the rich man's gate, but he was a believer. So when he died, that parable, Jesus says, he immediately was taken by angels to Abraham's bosom. And yes, I know, that can be confusing. How does that work? I don't fully know. But the point there in the parable is Jesus sees it as happening right away. Lazarus doesn't just fall asleep and become unconscious till a resurrection. He goes right away to be, in this case, in a kind of paradise in Abraham's bosom. And Abraham even says there, Lazarus in his lifetime received bad things, but now he's comforted here. And we know the now is before the resurrection because the other rich man speaks of his brother still alive. So if you as a Christian leave from your body, which can happen, if you leave from your body before you wake up tomorrow, what will you experience? You will be with Christ. It's not in vain that for so long children, in America at least, have quoted the New England primer or primer, which had this prayer, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. You see that taking? Not to leave until the resurrection. Immediately to take. This was, in fact, the prayer of the first martyr, Stephen. Acts chapter 7 is interesting because it actually says Stephen fell asleep when they stoned him. It's a Christian way of speaking of death. But we know it's not a soul sleep because do you remember Stephen's final prayer right before he fell asleep? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit to be with Christ. Look, I don't know. Do you, if you die, to go be with Christ? Do you get a temporary body so that you're with Christ and you have temporary eyes and hands and feet? Are you some kind of disembodied spirit experiencing Christ? How would I know that? How would you know that? That is so far beyond us. This is the thing we know with confidence, whether you get an intermediate temporary body or not. To leave, you will be with Christ in a way that is way better than literally everything else in your life put together. It's way better than all of that. So whatever that experience is, to depart and be with Christ is very much better. What no eye has seen, says scripture, what no ear has ever heard, what has never entered the heart of man, that means in your highest imaginations of heaven, What's never entered the heart of man, that's what God's prepared for those who love him. So how do we imagine it? As we come to a closing here, 
just want to give you maybe two helps to foster this affection for departing to be with Christ, because you can't imagine it. But try to take some powerful experiences in this life and amplify them, and that will give you something of the feeling of it. So here's one. Jesus said you can't enter the kingdom unless you become like a little child. There are many reasons for that, but if you think about back on your own childhood, one of the benefits, unless you had a very traumatic childhood, which does happen, but assuming you didn't, one of the benefits when you are a child, you have two things going on. One is you experience everything very vividly because it's all very new and fresh. Your imagination runs wild. So even small things are powerful. And when you get older, your imagination doles and they become commonplace. But as a child, when you first encounter things, they're very alive. They're very exciting. Highs and lows. The second thing is that you're not distracted by taxes and income, your job, all of these details. Because why? Your parents take care of it all. So you don't have to worry and think about that. You just focus on life that you're living. That's why to this day, probably for many of you, there's foods that you like, activities that you enjoy, times of the year that are especially meaningful to you simply because you had good experience of them in childhood. For myself, I can still, every time I drive early in the morning, if it's a crisp morning, I have this sentimental recollection of one fishing trip I took with my father and my brother. We got up early in the morning. We went fishing. I don't even like fishing, but there's this sentimental, you know what I mean. I don't know how to describe that. It's this good feeling. It's powerful. That kind of experience, not distracted by everything else and the worries and the cares of life, but completely free to live life itself with full, wide-eyed wonder and joy. If you don't wake up tomorrow, then that's what you get to experience with Christ and his glories forever. If you want another example, just as a help for us as we think, the Bible also teaches that romantic relationships are just a shadow of Christ and the church. So much so that when you get to the last book of the Bible in Revelation, we hear of the wedding supper of the Lamb and the bride, that's us, coming down out of heaven to Jesus, the groom. So if you have ever had a romantic relationship, if you're married or if you're in one right now, dating someone, courting, you feel the power of that relationship, that's because it's patterned on Christ and the church and especially what happens at the end when we are with him. So just, if you're married now, think back when you were first dating or getting to know your significant other. At that point, you didn't know that they smell bad at night and leave their laundry everywhere. They were perfect. Everything about them was absolutely perfect. And similar to childhood, anything you did with them now has a sentimental value. It's such a powerful experience. If you are dating, you feel that now or courting. If you're not, don't worry, because like I said, it's just a shadow just a shadow. That's all it is. But if you've experienced the power of romance, just know that that, if you don't wake up tomorrow, you'll realize that was just a small shadow of the feeling you have when you are with Christ. That's why it's very much better. Christian, for you and for me, death is still a thing. It's just that death is dead. 
We don't come to it as if we're coming to some morbid, macabre, twisted Halloween celebration. We approach death, we think of death in a way that makes it like the springtime. Death for us is a tool by which Christ may be honored. It is the elevator that takes us up to Christ's floor. It brings us to be with Christ. I know that's not our default way of thinking of it. And it's not always easy to think of death this way. But as scripture says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And let us comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you very much for giving us some time to pull away from the other affairs of life that we're involved in and simply to hear your word, to meditate upon it and by your spirit to take it to heart. I pray that this would be our view of dying, of to die, that it would be by us viewed as gain, not loss, but gain for us. I pray that we would, with Paul, be so excited, excited to leave this earth and to be with you, the culmination, the fulfillment of all of the echoes, of all of the shadows that we live in now, even in our relationship with you. I pray that you would foster in us a real excitement as if we were a child with a father coming home from work or a trip or as if we were uh, engaged and waiting for our fiancé to come back from a trip to see them. I pray that with that kind of excitement, we would long for you, our groom, that you would help us so to crave you that even the pain and the curse of death would by us be accounted a small thing, that we would consider it part of the small momentary afflictions that prepare for us an eternal weight of glory, which is to depart and be with you. And I pray that zeal would push us to bring as many people as we can with us, that they might be with you too and experience the greatest of all pleasures forever. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.